got a little bit of a throat problem this morning, so if I uh, have to go to the water here, I'll go to the water. Um, I've, been telling, uh, I've been telling you the last few weeks that our executive pastor, Dustin Krantz, uh, is going to be leaving us to pursue a career in the marketplace, and I've been saying that as we make plans for how to fill the big shoes that he leaves behind, uh, I would let you know. I have a few pieces of the puzzle uh, to let you know about this morning. And as sad as we are to see Dustin leave, I'm extremely excited to tell you that in the next few weeks, uh, Jeanette Allen will be transitioning into a new role here as the executive director of City Church. Jeanette will have oversight of all of the ministries and operations of the church, with the exceptions of uh, the ones that I oversee, worship and, and teaching. It's an enormous uh, amount of responsibility that Jeanette will have, but the Elder Board and I absolutely believe in Jeanette's unique set of skills and abilities and her capacity to take this position on. To my knowledge, Jeanette is the first woman to hold a position like this in any evangelical church here in Evansville. And any time a person is first at anything, you probably know that they're usually subjected to a great deal of scrutiny and criticism. So please, if you would pray for Jeanette as she transitions into this new role that she has in the weeks ahead. Rest assured as well that we will continue to provide excellent children's and student ministry programs in the future and we're working out the details of all of that now and as we have more information about that and other things uh, in the weeks ahead I will let you know. Finally one of the first decisions that Jeanette has made in her new position is to hire Bailey McDaniel as our new office manager slash events coordinator. Bailey will begin her new position here on November the 14th and we're excited to have Bailey. These are just a couple of the pieces of the puzzle. I would just say to you, please, uh, in addition to praying for Jeanette, please be patient with her as she makes this transition. Steep learning curve, undoubtedly some things are going to get, you know, they're going to fall between the cracks in the early going, but I feel very, very confident that Jeanette will pick things up very, very quickly. More to do, of course, and we'll let you know about additional pieces of the puzzle as we have them, but would you please uh, be praying with Jeanette and the rest of City Church, and in fact, let's pray together now. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you, and again, as we have in previous weeks, we affirm your providence, uh, your sovereignty over the events of all of human history. And even to uh, this, this church here in this city, in this moment, we recognize that you are sovereign over everything. And Lord, as we make uh, the changes and transitions that we make uh, going forward into the future, Lord, we pray that you would oversee those, that you would give us wisdom as we move forward. We do pray for Jeanette as she begins this new, very, very important role. Lord, give her much grace. Um, calm her fears. Uh, Lord, direct her as she takes this on. And I pray that we as a church body would lift her up, pray for her, and ask that the Spirit of God would move through Jeanette. 
Lord, we uh, pray this morning that you would speak to us as well through the Scriptures. And uh, Lord, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, change us this morning, change our perspective. And it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Find the book of James in uh, your Bibles in the New Testament and uh, turn in them, if you would, to chapter 1, James chapter 1. We are in a series uh, on the book of James that we have entitled Authentic Christianity, Find uh, James chapter 1. Dr. Helen Rosevere was a British medical doctor who worked for uh, many, many years as a missionary in the nation formerly known as Zaire. During the uh, Mobutu Revolution in the 1960s, uh, Dr. Rosevere often faced brutal beatings and other forms of physical torture for her faith in Christ. On one occasion, when she was about to be executed, she feared that God had forsaken her. And in that moment, she sensed the Holy Spirit saying to her, here's what she sensed the Holy Spirit saying, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being identified with me. This is it. Don't you want it? This is what it means. These are not your sufferings. They are my sufferings. Now, all I ask of you is the loan of your body. Dr. Rosevere survived that experience and wrote about how in that moment uh, the privilege of serving Christ through her sufferings overwhelmed her with joy. She said, he didn't stop the sufferings, he didn't stop the cruelties, the humiliation, it was all there. The pain was just as bad, the fear was just as bad. But she said it was altogether different. It was in Jesus, for him and with him. And that perspective turned my suffering into joy. One of the things that is so striking about the book of James is that after just a one-verse introduction, James, uh, the pastor and then the, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, launches into a discussion about how disciples of Jesus Christ are to handle suffering. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, I say it's striking that James begins his book talking about suffering, but to James' original readers, it really wouldn't have been that striking. Suffering was on the forefront of their minds. They were, like Dr. Rosevere, being persecuted for their faith in Christ. They'd been forced to leave their homes and their families and their jobs, relatives back in Israel, and they were now scattered about among the neighboring nations. So James writes to them with a pastor's heart, to comfort them in their suffering. In fact, I, you know, I would go on to say that starting his book on the topic of suffering probably wouldn't have been striking, not just to those people to whom he was writing, but to most people throughout history. Until very recently, 70 years, let's say, people throughout history knew that life was unfair, that it was brutal, hard. And because of that, often very, very short, suffering would have been at the forefront of most people's minds throughout history. No, when I, when I said that it is striking that James starts his book by talking about suffering, I was really speaking from a 21st century uh, Western perspective. It's striking to us 
because scientific advancements and technology and our relative wealth often insulates us from suffering, so much so that when suffering punctures the protective bubbles in which we live, it's a surprise, it's a shock. It's not supposed to be like this. We're not supposed to suffer. But the central message of the book of James is that authentic faith transforms ordinary lives into heroic lives. Now, I'm not talking about a self-aggrandizing, self-glorifying kind of heroism. I'm talking about a God-glorifying, Holy Spirit-enabled, Christ-imitating kind of heroic living. Authentic faith transforms ordinary lives into heroic lives. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that James is right. That this kind of life is forged only through the crucible of suffering. And so despite our shock as 21st century Westerners, despite our protestations about the injustice of suffering, the topic of how believers in Christ are to handle suffering is still very relevant, isn't it? There's not a person here who hasn't struggled with belief in Christ when suffering took your breath away or when suffering went on far longer than you thought it would or could have ever imagined that it would or when it tragically affected the life of someone you love regardless of the kind or the cause of the suffering. Oh, oh yeah, seriously, suffering is still terribly relevant to 21st century life, isn't it? Well, when we arrive at verse 9, James is still writing about suffering in the midst of trials. I'd like, like for you to read with me from verse 9 of chapter 1. Verse 9, James chapter 1. James says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride, literally the word is boast, in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a, like a wildflower. For the sun rises and with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now, I have to say that uh, at first glance, it doesn't seem obvious that James is still talking about trials and suffering. It looks like he shifted gears here. And simply by the virtue of the fact that he mentions wealth, he can't possibly be talking about trials and suffering, right? And if he is, sign me up for that kind of suffering. I'd love the kind of suffering that comes with wealth. But watch this. Look at verse 12. James says, blessed is the one who perseveres under, and there's the word again, trial." Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. So in fact, he hasn't changed subjects. Believe it or not, he's still talking about trials and suffering. And what he's doing is that he's giving us two different case studies about trials and suffering. Now the first one is very understandable. James, you know, we, we get the fact that this is suffering. James refers to believers 
in humble circumstances. It's the Greek word tapenos, and it means a person who has been brought down. They're, they're lowly. And as you can guess in this case, it's, it's referring to people who are experiencing poverty, which is where most of the people to whom James is writing are. They've lost, as I said earlier, everything because of their belief in Christ. That one's easy to understand how that's trial and suffering. It's the second case that's more difficult to understand. How in the world is having wealth a part of trials and suffering? How could that be? Well, make a note of this somewhere. The greatest obstacle, this is the point that James is making, the greatest obstacle to maturity in Christ is wealth. Uh, the greatest obstacle to maturity in Christ is wealth. And remember that that's the goal that James spoke about back in verse 4. This is why trials come into our lives, because we want to become mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's the ultimate objective of persevering through trials, becoming mature, complete, living a, uh, being able to live a heroic life. Now, I hesitate to do this because I just used this quote a few weeks ago when we were talking about being uh, right on the money, and we were looking at the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, but this quote is so apropos to what we're talking about, to what James is saying here, that I'm going to drag this quote out again, and some of you may remember it. One commentator made this shocking point. He says this. He says, wealth is a human value with a voracious appetite which binds a person to earth. Jesus did not envy the rich, but rather pitied them. It put them under a terrible handicap in their relationship to the kingdom of God, making it hard for them to submit to his rule in simple trust. And you see, this is precisely the point James is making. Now, he's not saying that having wealth is wrong, not at all. And by the way, I want you to notice here that James doesn't define wealth. There's not a line that you cross when you have X amount of dollars that says you're wealthy. The idea here is that the more wealth you have, the greater the obstacle it is to heroic living. But the problem with wealth is that it is very, very difficult not to fuse your identity together with your wealth. Why? Why? Well, it's because wealth has power. For instance, wealth has the power to distort reality in a way that makes you think that you're smarter than you are, more likable than you really are, better looking than you really are, more desirable than you really are. You become more entitled. You have a sense that you're more deserving than you really are. See, it, it has this power to distort reality, the way that you look at life, the way that you look at yourself. More than that, wealth also has the power to make you feel more secure than you really are. Because it can, as we said a little while ago, insulate you for a while from the vicissitudes of life. The wealthier you are, the safer you feel. 
You know, you, you, the wealthier you are, you, you can live in the right neighborhoods. So you don't have to worry about crime. The people who live around you, well, they look like you. They value the same things you do. You're able to, if you're wealthy, curate your life to your liking more. And it becomes more difficult to see how needy you really are, how much like everyone else you really are at the core, how powerless you really are, how fallen you really are, how temporary you really are. The more you have, the harder it is for you to come to the end of yourself and your resources, which is the exact place, we've said this throughout this series, that at the end of your resources is the exact place in which Christ starts to emerge in your life. Someone once said that Christ's address is at the end of your rope. And you see, that's where the life that you were intended to live, the person that you were created to be, the little H hero that you always wanted to be emerges. At the end of your rope, where you can no longer rely on yourself and your own resources. That's where Christ begins to be seen. Wealth is actually quite powerful, and so it's difficult to not let wealth fuse your identity with your wealth. The problem is, James says, that eventually, no matter how much wealth you have, over time, as you age, the power of wealth fades, like the beauty of a, a wildflower. Wealth doesn't have the power to stop the aging process. It doesn't have the power to slow the disintegration, the slow disintegration over the, of the human body. And as its power fades, if your identity has been fused with your wealth, you fade with it. You lose your identity. And this is why Christ pitied the rich. And why James says that the wealthy should take pride, the word is actually, as I said a little while ago, boast in their humiliation. Rather than putting their identity in their fading wealth, they should recognize that their wealth becomes an obstacle to their maturity in Christ. And that it blinds them to the reality of their need for Christ. And if you really understood James is saying, if you really understood the purpose of life, if you really understood life from an eternal perspective, you would understand that being, that, that being so wealthy that you can't see your need for Christ, or so wealthy that you can't become mature and complete in Christ, is really, really the worst suffering of all. If that's what you were created for, to be made mature in Christ, what a waste of a life if you don't become that. That's suffering, you see. Now, we have to be very careful here because this passage, as I said, it's not saying that wealth is wrong. It's just saying it, pre it prevents, it, or excuse me, that it presents an enormous obstacle to growth in Christ. But just like it's not saying that wealth is wrong, it's also not saying that poor people are inherently better off. The key to what James says is 
the key to what James is saying about people with humble means is the very first word in verse 9. Did you notice it? Did you notice it? It was the word believers. James is talking about a Christian who, in terms of the material things of this world, is poor. He has no power. She has no possessions to look at and to say, look at what I've acquired. Because he's poor, he most likely doesn't get much respect from people. She isn't wanted. No one's inviting her to come and meet the governor or to sit in the position of honor at some banquet. And yet, this poor believer, standing in the midst of nothing, can say, by the miracle of the grace of God, I've been invited into a personal relationship with the king of the universe. In the one way that is truly important, even though I have nothing, I am rich. And so, in this believer's poverty, he or she is exalted to a position higher than any that the wealthiest people in the world occupy. It's not that poor people are inherently better off. It's that poor believers... For believers in Christ have been exalted into a relationship with the king of the universe through and by grace. That's what James is getting at. Now move on, if you would, to verse 12. James writes this. He says, blessed, we just read this a moment ago, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. You might make a note of this. Trials are the channels through which the deepest longings of your heart are satisfied. Trials, not wealth. Trials are the channels through which the deepest longings of your heart are satisfied. Now, I'm going to just be very candid with you about something for a moment. You have no idea how hard that sentence was for me to write as I manuscripted my sermon this past week. That trials are the channels through which the deepest longings of your heart are satisfied. It's very, very difficult for me to write that. Very, very difficult for me to say it. Because I realize how churchy it sounds. I realize how pastory it sounds. How preachy it sounds. And to be perfectly honest, if I didn't read this passage and study it closely for myself, I would dismiss this point. If any other pastor I was listening to said it in a sermon, I'd say, well, that's just being, that's just being preachy, pastory. But it is precisely what James is saying. The trials are the channels through which the deepest longings of your heart are satisfied. You see, this word that he starts this verse with, the word blessed, it's the Greek word makarios. In ancient Greek times, uh, makarios referred to the pantheon of Greek gods. They and they only had achieved a state of happiness and contentment and satisfaction with life that was 
beyond all cares, beyond all labors, even, even, even doubt. The blessed ones were those beings who lived in some other world. They were gods, and they were away from the cares and the problems and the worries of ordinary people. To be blessed, you had to be a god. Macarius eventually took on a second meaning, and it referred to the dead. Uh, the blessed ones were human beings who, through death, had reached the other world of the gods. They were now beyond the cares and the problems and the worries of earthly life. To be blessed, you had to be a god or you had to be dead. Eventually, though, Makarios came to refer to something else. It came to refer to the elite, the upper crust of society, the wealthy people. It referred to people whose riches and power put them above normal cares and problems and worries of the lesser folk, peons, constantly struggle and worry and labor in life. To be blessed, you had to be very rich, very powerful. Many commentators have made the observation that there are an enormous number of parallelisms between the book of James and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this verse, of course, would be one of them, because if you remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he begins with, you remember how the Sermon on the Mount begins? With the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who... And then the last of which was, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Which was the trial, the precise trial that James' audience was suffering. Throughout the history of this word makarios, it had always been the other people who were considered blessed, the rich, the powerful, the comfortable, the satisfied. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, which James is paralleling here, Jesus turned that all upside down. The elite in God's kingdom, the blessed ones in God's kingdom are those who persevere through the inevitable trials of life, because it is through the trials that the deepest longings of the heart are satisfied. Uh, back in 2011, there was a woman by the name of Laura Story who wrote and performed uh, a song called Blessings. Now, again, to be perfectly candid with you, I have only a vague memory of the song, uh, of ever hearing the song, and I, I don't remember the song being my style particularly. So if you go listen to it this afternoon and, and, and you think, well, boy, that kind of sounds uh, old and cheesy, well, don't blame me for that, okay? But the lyrics, the song, the song struck a chord with a lot of people, and it became the number one Christian song in America and stayed on the charts for 34 weeks. A sign, I think, of just how many people uh, could identify with it. And the song was called Blessings, and here's, here's just a few of the lyrics. She says, we pray for blessings. I I'm not going to sing it. I'll just read them to you, okay? Uh, we pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family. Protection while we sleep. We pray for healing. For prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. All the while you hear each spoken need, yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. 
And then the chorus of the song goes like this, because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healings, what if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? She goes on, when friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not our home. Do you see that this is what James is saying? He's saying you were created and redeemed for something greater than material wealth, something greater than money, something greater than success can ever satisfy. All of that is fading, James says. You were created to never fade. You were created to last forever. You were created and redeemed to live a life of heroism in this moment, in this moment of time, in this particular corner of the world, to a fallen world in desperate need of hope, of people who live courageously, sacrificially, people who love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them, for, who promote unity instead of division. Allowing the life of Christ that has been installed on the hard drives of, of the souls of those who believe to emerge through your life. For those who understand that reality includes more than your physical senses can imagine. That's what this world is desperately in need of. Little H heroes like you, like me, that imitate the life of of the big H hero, Jesus Christ, whose life really only seems to emerge from our lives through the crucible of suffering. Everything you've ever wanted to be, everything you were created to be, everything you long for is satisfied through the channel of trials. And that's what it means to be blessed. And so James says, wherever you are, whatever the trial is, you've lost a friend, someone betrayed you, you're going through a divorce, you've lost a loved one. It's a financial trial. It's a relational trial. It's a health trial. He says, whatever it is that you're going through, persevere. Don't give up, persevere. My wife has a quote on our refrigerator. I think it's one of those motivational quotes, and I don't really care for motivational quotes a whole lot, but because it's my wife's and it's on our refrigerator, I like this one a lot. <laughs> uh, but I think I really like it because it reminds me of what James is saying here. Here's what the quote says. It says this. It says, it says reset, readjust, restart, refocus as many times as you need to. Just do not quit. And that's what James means when he says persevere. Look, whether your trial is a kind of suffering that everyone would recognize as suffering, like, you know, you've lost your job or something like that, poverty, or whether your trial is the kind in which people with a limited perspective and philosophy of life would envy, whatever your trial 
Whatever you're suffering, we're all going to lose perspective. We're all going to sin. We're all going to value the wrong things. But what Christ bought for us at the cross is the freedom to fail and to learn and to grow. And so if you've lost sight of God's presence in the midst of your suffering, if you find yourself wanting to give up, if you've given in to something that was an illegitimate way of numbing the pain of your suffering, if you find yourself fusing your identity to your wealth, let me just remind you of that quote, but let me just modify it a little bit, okay? Here's, here's what I would say to you. Repent. Reset. Readjust. Restart. Refocus. As many times as you need to, just do not quit. Because this is how heroes are made. Don't quit. Persevere. Whatever it is that you're going through, persevere. Because this is how heroes are made. Okay, last thing. I want you to notice again in verse 12. James says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. We've seen this. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life. Life meaning what you were designed for. The crown of life that the Lord has promised to those, and I want you to see these last few words, to those who love Him. And you see, that's the real motivation to persevere. Uh, love for Christ. The cross, you see, is the proof that no matter what you suffer in this life, God has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten you. And I want to close with, I just want to, I want to close with this story. John Lennox is an author and an emeritus professor of mathematics at uh, Oxford University, and he is a follower of Christ as well. Lennox tells a story about touring Eastern Europe and meeting a Jewish woman uh, from South Africa. The woman told uh, Lennox that she was researching how her relatives had perished in the Holocaust. At one point on their guided tour, they passed a display that had the, uh, the words written on it in German, work makes free, which of course was a cynical lie for people as they entered these Jewish concentration camps. This was a mock-up of the main gate to the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz. The display also had pictures of the horrific medical experiments that were carried out on children by the infamous Dr. Joseph Mengele. At that point of their tour, the Jewish woman turned to Lennox and she said, and what does your religion make of this? And Lennox writes, he says, what was I to say? She had lost her parents and many relatives in the Holocaust. I could scarcely bear to look at the Mengele photographs because of the sheer horror of imagining my own children suffering such a fate. I had nothing in my life that remotely paralleled the horror that her family had endured, but still she stood in the doorway waiting for an answer, this Jewish woman. I eventually said, 
I would not insult your memory of your parents by offering you simplistic answers to your question. What is more, I have young children and I cannot bear to think how I might react if anything were to happen to them, even if it were far short of the evil that Mengele did. I have no easy answers, but I do have what, for me at least, is a doorway into an answer. What is it, she asked. Lennox said to her, you know that I'm a Christian. That means that I believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. I also believe that he was God incarnate, come into our world as a Savior, which is what his name, Yeshua, means. Now, I know that this is even more difficult for you to accept. Nevertheless, just think about this question. If Yeshua was really God, as I believe he was, what was God doing on a cross? And then he says, could it be that God begins just here to meet our heartbreak by demonstrating that he did not remain distant from our human suffering but became part of it himself? For me, this is the beginning of hope, and it is a living hope that cannot be smashed by the enemy of death. The story does not end in the darkness of the cross. Yeshua conquered death. He rose from the dead. And one day as the final judge, he will assess everything in absolute fairness, righteousness, and mercy. And Lennox writes, there was silence. She was still standing, arms outstretched, forming a motionless cross in the doorway. And after a moment, with tears in her eyes, very quietly but audibly, she said, why has no one ever told me that about my Messiah before? Whatever the suffering is that you're going through right now, I don't have easy answers for it either. All I know is that Christ's death on the cross provides a doorway of hope. That there is meaning to your suffering, that he did not stand at a distance from your suffering, but instead identified with it. And that the story doesn't end with your suffering. There is meaning to it. And this suffering, this trial that you're going through, whatever it is, is the channel through which all the deepest longings of your heart will be satisfied. Would you bow with me for prayer? It is so very difficult to accept. It sounds so cheesy. It sounds so superficial that trials are the channels through which the deepest longings of our heart are satisfied. And certainly to a person in the midst of suffering, it just doesn't sound like enough. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to remain focused on your cross and what you did there for us. And Lord, that 
as a result of coming to the end of ourselves that your life, those of us who have believed in you, that your, your life has been, it's been placed inside of us, installed in the hard drive of our souls. We pray that that life would begin to emerge. Less me, more you. Because our world desperately needs, um, it desperately needs little age heroes who are imitating the big age hero of Yeshua. For those that have never come to a place where they believe in you, Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps today they would, you would impress upon their hearts that you have come for them, that you have died for their sins, and that you have been raised again from the dead. And I pray this morning that you would give them a, just a, an urgency, a sense of urgency about coming before the throne, bringing all their sins to the foot of the cross and saying, Lord Jesus Christ, be my Savior. I need a Savior. And I can only be saved through you. And we pray these things now, Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your name that we pray. 